Amen. So our text this morning is going to come from 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. So, same author, but in his epistle and not his gospel. We're going to see what John has to say in these verses. Um, John Owen said, The foundation of true holiness and true Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel, what we are to believe. So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. John Owen talks here of foundations. Uh, John, the apostle of Christ, in this first epistle of his, is absolutely concerned with making sure that his readers are maintaining the foundational beliefs in the doctrines of Christ. These first four verses really set the scene for the importance of a Christ-centered theology in our Christian walk. So, I pray that you are in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Now hear the infallible, inspired word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant, and it was written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and it testifies to supernatural, miraculous events that occur in direct fulfillment of prophecies and that we have it in our hands. God, we thank you for that. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. So, I did a sermon series on the first part of 1 John, and I love this introduction. This introduction is so solid because it is all about one thing, Jesus. That was John's focus. Jesus Christ was John's focus. I think we've seen that fairly clearly up to uh, John 17 where we are now in, in the gospel of John. And it's clear in his epistle as well. He is focused on Jesus. But there is something to grasp here. And we need to dig. So let's dig together. Verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Let's start where John always loves to start. Have you noticed this? 
He likes to start in the beginning. There are two extremely important in the beginnings in Scripture. Genesis 1.1, we should all know this, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1.1, how he began his gospel says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we're going to get into those a little more in depth as well as we go through this. But let's look at this particular verse more in depth for a second here. It says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So let's take those things. Let's look at them. What did they hear? They heard the very words of Christ directly from his mouth. Things like the Sermon on the Mount. Could you imagine being present at the Sermon on the Mount? The greatest sermon ever preached. They heard the parable of the sower as he explained how the word of God and the kingdom spreads to people. They saw his interaction with Nicodemus in John 3. They said, Lord... Help us to pray. And he said, pray this way. And they heard from the Lord his own prayer. And they heard the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. They heard those words out of his mouth. And in John 17, which we are in now, they heard the high priestly prayer where he prayed for them specifically. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for you. And he said, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. My favorite verse in the whole Bible. They heard firsthand all of the most important words ever spoken on this earth. They were eyewitnesses, and they heard it with their own ears. What did they see? They saw the great works of Christ. They saw him calm seas and storms with word. They saw him walk on water. How many of y'all tried that as a kid? Did it work out? Nope. They saw him feeding multitudes with just a few little barley loaves and some fish, little sardines. They saw him heal blind eyes, deaf ears, leprosy, and paralysis. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And finally, after he died bodily, physically dead, clinically dead. How do we know? Blood and water flowed. Look it up. It's really cool. After they saw that, they saw him fully alive after he rose again. They saw him ascend into heaven and to be seated at God's right hand, just like we say in our Apostles' Creed. They saw these things with their own two eyes. What did they touch? Notice John said they, we touched it with our hands. So what did they touch? 
I think this could be one of the most important parts of this. It's an essential point to our faith. They touched Christ after his resurrection. Christ rose bodily. He was not a spirit or a ghost. He was not a hallucination. He rose bodily, and guess what? Why is this important? Well, for one, we know it's true that he rose. Secondly, it's true because one day we're going to follow him in that resurrection when he returns. No doubt. The apostles and the early church found this point to be very essential. And John thought it was important enough to write in his epistle to a church. John next ties all of these points together with an important phrase, okay? This is an important phrase. He says, concerning the word of life. All of this evidence ties to the word of life. So let's draw that thin line that we talked about, about in the beginnings that John uses. What is the word of life? If he's talking about in the beginning, what do these evidences about the beginnings have to do with the word of life? Let's look at it. The word of life in the beginning is this. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created in the beginning. He spoke the words, and what he spoke came into existence, correct? How does that tie to John's testimony here? Because there has to be, there, there, there's a very specific truth that we can clearly see in this if we'll look at it. Jesus Christ is God. God the Son. He was present and active in creation. John was testifying to the apostles' understanding that Jesus was God. He proved it in all he said, all he did, and most of all, in his resurrection bodily from the grave. Now let's look at John's own account of the beginning, because it's important too, right? John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is speaking of Christ as the Word, right? He says, the Word. Well, the word, word, here, means logos, which basically translated as this, the logic of God. So the point is that all God has said to man in his word, in his logic, in what he is saying, all he has ever said to man comes to fulfillment in one place, in the person of Jesus Christ. All he has said, all of redemptive history, the Torah, comes to fulfillment. The law comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The law, the thing that says we sin, just like we talk to the kids about, we sin, we, we do the wrong things. It all comes to fulfillment in Christ because he fulfilled the law because we can't. The prophets come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the prophecies are about a redeemer, a Mashiach, a Savior that's going to come, and that person 
is the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, just like it says. So all of Scripture, all God has ever said comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And how do we know this to be true? John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. He doesn't leave it up to subjective thought. He is objectively telling us what the truth is. John says, The Word came, the fulfillment of all Scripture came, and it was Jesus Christ, period. There's no other way to look at it. The Word was Christ. All God had ever said and intended. It was fulfilled in Christ, and He literally was God's Word in flesh. All His promises, all of His attributes, the fulfillment of the plan of redemption, it's all Jesus Christ. So John is emphatic that Christ is God and that Christ is the Word of God fulfilled. That was their testimony. And they had evidence of it because they heard it. They saw it and they touched it. In verse 2 it says, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus Christ is the word of life. He even said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. There's a reason we sang that song this morning. He is the life. John again testifies that the apostles are eyewitnesses to this. And that's not bragging. It's important to us. He's not bragging. We got to see it and you didn't, nana, 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 right? No, that's not what's happening. He's making a specific point on purpose. He's saying, we were eyewitnesses. Why is he saying it? Because... The New Testament writings are the writings of eyewitnesses. First-hand accounts, not second-hand accounts, not things passed down. No, John saw him. Peter saw him. Matthew saw him. Paul saw him very clearly when he was knocked off his high horse in the middle of the road. These men saw him. They testify first-hand about him. These writings that we have in the New Testament are inspired writings that have authority for us. And that is why they testify to it. These guys give these testimonies. And how do they do it? We should be thankful to the apostles on how they did it. They wrote it down in letters which they sent to churches. And these churches kept it. And they didn't just keep it for themselves. They had somebody else write it down and send it on to the next church. So that if you look historically in Old Testament uh, writings, it's held in the Pentateuch. Good, we got scrolls. But you know what we have in the New Testament? We have evidence of churches, underground churches, hidden churches. And they have a little stack of, of scrolls and manuscripts of these writings that these men wrote to us. They testify to it. They wrote the testimonies down. And that is the canon of the New Testament. That's where it came from. From eyewitnesses. So, I don't know who likes the Da Vinci Code in here, but the Da Vinci Code lie, it's a fiction book, and 
I've heard uh, some Bible scholars say, not that good of a fiction. It says that the Council of Nicaea wrote it and decided what the Bible should be. And that's just a lie. Because the early church treasured these testimonies. The Council of Nicaea set the canon not by picking and choosing what they liked, but by determining apostolic nature, means it was written by an apostle or a direct colleague of an apostle. You know, we have Mark, the book of Mark. I don't know if you've ever heard this. The book of Mark is actually probably transcribed by Mark from the mouth of Peter. The book of Luke is transcribed from the mouth of Paul. So these have direct tie to an apostle, okay? So it's got apostolic nature. It has doctrinal surety. That means it don't say crazy stuff. Like, like one of the uh, apocryphal books that, we've, that I've heard that says that uh, if, if uh, a lady wants to go to heaven, she's got to become a man, and then if she's a man, she gets to go to heaven. That's weird, and that's not true, and that's why it's not in the Bible. And the continual use by believers throughout the early church. Here, here's what we'd have to do. If we were going to say it wasn't true, we'd have to go back to the original manuscripts, which we have some. is very close, closer than any other book in history. We have writings by early church fathers that directly link to those manuscripts. And then we have translations of those manuscripts. So all that would have to be faked for it not to be the true Bible. And we all know that's ridiculous. It's the canon of the New Testament, and it's real. It's authoritative. The Word of God is the basis for any time of renewal, revival, or great movement in the church. From the time of the gospel being spread all over the world, like Paul said, that the gospel is being spread all over the world. He was, he was in Asia. It went, we have uh, evidence that, that Thomas went to India, that Matthew was in Ethiopia, that they were going into the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel to the time of the Reformation, when... The gospel was recovered when we regained the idea of, the, uh, of justification and that the word was uh, authoritative. And even the time of the First Great Awakening when Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were preaching uh, mo- uh, the word of God and, and people were coming to Christ uh, left and right because they were hearing the gospel preached and they were cut to the heart. All these times it has one thing in common, the word of God was preached. But just writing it as a testimony was not enough for these disciples. They proclaimed it. He said, we, we, we testify of it and we proclaim it. And many of them paid for it with their lives. So why would these men dedicate their lives, their blood, and their treasure? They lost everything. Why would they do that? Two words. Eternal life. They knew that this wasn't the end. They knew that this was a blink and that they would spend eternity with their Savior who they had seen face to face. And they would once again, when their eyes closed on this earth, they would open their eyes and they would see the beautiful face of the one who they followed for three years. They had to share that good news that in Christ we have eternal life. But not just that. It says, with the Father and made manifest. These descriptions only fit one. Who was the one that was with the Father from the beginning? Jesus Christ. And who was made manifest to us all? Jesus Christ. They knew that they had to preach Christ above all else. 
just as in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24, we see what Paul describes as their, as their message. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdoms, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The apostles preached Christ. He was their message. It was all about Christ and what he had done and what he had promised. That justification was only available through him. That was their message. And that is why the changed lives happened. That is why they changed their lives. And that's why many lives were changed through that message. This wasn't cool encounters or experiences. This was serious life change. The Holy Spirit regenerating men and women all over the world. We should take note of that. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Jesus Christ. John repeats himself here a little, a little right? He, but he's doing it in order to reinforce a message and make that message the preeminent thing, the, the most important thing. What is the most important thing? They preach Christ to all because he is their all. But here John brings forward the purpose of this. What is the purpose of their preaching of Christ? It says, so that you have fellowship with us, fellowship in Christ. Now, there's one way on earth that we clearly see fellowship with Christ, and that is fellowship in His church. One day, we will all join all the saints that have ever been in Christ, and we will be with Christ forever with them, with that great multitude. Until then... We need another kind of fellowship. We need the church. We need fellowship in the local church. Christ set it up that way. The early church understood that. In fact, until recent times, all Christians understood that they needed fellowship in the church, in the local church. We need in-person fellowship with like-minded believers. Why should we join a local church? I'm glad you asked. Mark Dever gives seven great reasons in his church questions book that asks that particular question. One, to display the gospel. Two, because the Bible requires it. Three, to love other Christians and edify the church. Four, to evangelize the world. Five, to assure yourself. Six, to expose false gospels. And seven, to glorify God. But John points out the main reason next in this verse. Fellowship in a biblical local church is fellowship with God. To fellowship in a local church is to be in God's fellowship as Christ has established it. Some people say that, that Christ didn't establish a, 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 a church. But I beg to differ. Because he said to his apostles, he said, on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom on how to build it. And guess what? They did that, and they wrote it down for us in the Word. 
That's the meat of the message here. That the, me- that the message of Christ is what brings people into fellowship with God. And he then, in the next verse, gives us something to look at in our own hearts. Verse 4 says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be full, and that our joy may be complete. That our joy may be complete. That's what I titled this sermon. Because that's the point we're getting to. What makes our joy complete as those who believe in Christ? Well, let's look at what John's joy is. We can tell because he's written some really good works for us to read. What is John's joy? What does he seem to take joy in? First of all, writing his experiences with Christ and teaching of Christ. He, he, he loves giving those teachings out. He writes it down. He wrote a book and he wrote three epistles. I mean, he liked writing it. And then he wrote the book of Revelation, which is a revelation of Jesus Christ. So he loves writing these things down about Christ. He loves proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Because that's all he does in his books, if you look. He is constantly pointing to Jesus Christ. He loves having fellowship with fellow believers. Why? Because he wrote that. We want you to be in fellowship with us. He loves seeing people repent and trust in Christ in order to join that fellowship. As you can see, it always points back to Christ, right? Bringing people to Christ. But most of all, what was his joy? Christ himself. He had joy in Christ. As, as we know, he's, he described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's the focus of that? Not him. The fact that Jesus loves me. John thought, Jesus loves me. The, the God of all the universe, God the Son, loves me. So his joy was taken in Christ. So, I think we apply this teaching very simply by asking ourselves a few important questions. The first one is this. Do we hold to solid doctrine in our own hearts? We're the only ones who know that, right? Me and, me and Brother Kelby can get up and, and preach solid doctrine to you, but only you know, of course God knows as well, whether you hold to that solid doctrine. So do you hold to the, to the deity of Christ, that Christ is God the Son, eternal, co- co-equal with God? That he rose bodily and not as a ghost. That there is authority and inspiration in scripture. That we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. All according to scripture alone. For the glory of God alone. Do you believe in those things? That's solid doctrine. So we ask ourselves that. Secondly, we ask ourselves, do we find joy in God's word? And is it central in our lives? These are wonderful truths from eyewitnesses. Do we, do we look at it that way? Does it mark our lives? Does it mark our time and, and, our, and, and what we do daily? Thirdly, I would say, we need to ask ourselves, do we seek to apply its truth to our lives? And do we seek after holiness? Do we seek after the things that God has said? Do we try to live in a way that is, is pleasing to Him where we reach out to others and we help and we, and we proclaim the gospel to others? And that's where we come to number four. Do we proclaim Christ no matter the cost? And that's the gospel. We must share Christ. He is the power of God unto salvation. And we never know who needs to hear that message. So we must proclaim it no matter the cost. And for some of us, there is a cost. Number five, this question we need to ask. Do we love God's people? Are we highly esteeming of the church and not forsaking that gathering? And for us, are we on the discipleship pathway, right? Are we doing these things? Are we seeking 
seeking more fellowship by loving God's people. Because really there's three disciplines. There's prayer, there's Bible reading, and there's uh, membership and fellowship in the local church. And lastly, ask ourselves this question. This is probably the one that, that upon, upon it all others hinge. Do we treasure Christ above all else? Do we treasure Christ above all else? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, that in your word is contained such truth, peace, and joy that we could never measure it in any way. It's the most wonderful thing that we can take your word and see you speak to us and teach us these wonderful things. God, we are so thankful for the apostles who, as eyewitnesses, wrote this word for us. We're thankful to the men throughout history who have preserved this and made sure that it gets into our hands. That now, not only can we have one Bible, we can have hundreds of Bibles and we can have it all in one device. And that's all you're doing. We thank you for that. God, I pray that this message cuts to our hearts, that we would see these things that we may need to repent of or turn to and, and know that we can have more peace in you just by focusing on Christ and making him the treasure of our, of our hearts. Help us to do that. Father, I pray for anybody who may not know you, that they may be cut to the heart with this message, that, they're, that this may be a rock in their shoe, that they may not move forward in their lives until they are regenerated and they repent and trust in you. Sinner, you must turn to Christ. He is your only hope. Turn to him and live. Father, we thank you for all that you do for us. And we love you. Let us see you bigger and, and more powerful every day. Let us magnify your name every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.